Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you all again this week. The title of this class is Faith Seeking Understanding, Lessons Un, in parentheses, Unlearned. Uh, what we did last week was kind of sketch out, we, we're using this phrase from St. Anselm, uh, famed Archbishop of Canterbury, on Faith Seeking Understanding. And last week, uh, I kind of used that phrase as a threefold uh, outline to introduce the class uh, last week. And I'm going to continue. What I'm going to try to do is the first time I've ever tried to work through this material. Um, and so, what I'm going to try to do as we go throughout, throughout these classes is always kind of use that as the threefold outline for each class session faith, understanding, and seeking. Uh, and, and as we saw last week with Anselm, he, he has this further quote where he says, I do not seek to understand so that I may believe, but I believe so that I may understand. That is, he starts with the presumption of faith, the gift of faith, uh, the faith that has been handed to us or that we have received or that we have somehow accepted, some, that we have somehow come to. And then out of that gift of faith, we can then begin to seek to try to understand. So for Anselm, understanding is not a threat to the faith. Understanding is something that one does because one is created in the image of God and because rationality is a gift of God that out of our faith, in response to our faith, we seek to arrange our understanding such that it serves our faith. And moreover, we can look at it from a different angle as we did last week and say that because of our faith, we may come to understand things about reality, about the world, about ourselves, that we could not understand if we try to understand apart from faith. That faith itself is a resource by which, or we might say for those of us who um, believe, we might say that it is the very ground of existence. It's the very ground of understanding really any deep truth about nature or any deep truth about reality. So, faith-seeking understanding, and then we talked about the seeking part. That um, Well, before I go into that, let me, let, me, let me remind you of the two metaphors I gave you last week. One of those was uh, from Alexander Campbell, who in his distrust of theology used this metaphor. He used the metaphor of medicine and a theory of medicine. <coughs> And he said that as medicine is to a theory of medicine, so are the facts of the gospel to theology. That to be healed, one does not need a theory of medicine, one needs just the medicine. And in the same way he said, to be saved, one does not need to do theology, one simply needs the facts of the gospel. And we said, well, there may be a, a point at which such a metaphor might teach us something. Remember, metaphors are always multifaceted, and a metaphor can be helpful in some ways and terribly unhelpful in other ways. So this metaphor might be helpful at the angle of saying, if you have someone who is a, 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 about to die of tuberculosis, and you give them penicillin, then one can in fact save them by the medicine without them having any understanding of how penicillin works, right? And yet at the same time, we said, however, on an ongoing sort of basis, if a, if a healthcare professional encounters the person who says, I don't, want, I don't want to hear anything about what you think about health. I just want you to give me the antibiotic. They get a cold and they come in and say, I want an antibiotic. And they don't feel well. And they come in and say, I want an antibiotic. 
and every sort of ailment is, give me, a, give me the pill, give me the pill. You see, that doesn't work very well in the long term. And what we're suggesting here is that maybe a better metaphor for thinking about faith-seeking understanding is that we have these sorts of, we think of it in relational terms. We have a sort of, um, actually forgetting what I did on this side of the metaphor, um, we have a sort of reality and claims about faith, the reality of our lived experience, and then we seek understanding. We seek to tell stories. We seek to form our memory. And we see this as maybe a metaphor about friendship. And we have the reality of friendship. And the reality of friendship then leads us to seek further understanding. And we tell stories and we develop memories. And that further deepens the reality of the friendship. And that in turn helps facilitate more of this. And that in turn helps facilitate more of this. And it may be that this is more, a much more helpful metaphor for thinking about the long-term task of what it means to be a believer. That, of course, we have this sort of experience that's beyond and more important in real ways than the way I understand it. And yet, for a long-term sort of pursuit of this relationship, clearly understanding and memory and stories are going to be of utmost importance. I th the reason that um, I kind of wanted to do this class is that it occurred to me, I've been telling people, you know, I'm having to accept that I'm solidly middle-aged now. And uh, it's, a, it's a difficult sort of acceptance to come to. Uh, but I'm 53, turned 53 in January. And that means that um, I've basically been, you know, my first kind of earliest memories I'm going to talk some about today. I don't know, I was two, three, four when you start getting those early experiences. My, my very earliest experience that I remember, I must have been very, very young. I don't know how old I was, but I was small enough to be being bathed by my grandmother at her house, at their house in Donaldson when I, when I was you know, visiting my parents that brought me up to be with my grandmother. Um, but I'm about a half a century in to trying to be a Christian. And... I thought, you know what, one of the things I want to try to do here with this is say, what are some of the major things I've had to learn and unlearn and relearn in order to make this ongoing pursuit of Christian life make any sense and be a sort of relationship uh, that I want to stay in or that I can't get away from or that I think is the very basic meaning to my life and the fabric of my life. So this, I think, is a more helpful long-term metaphor this metaphor of friendship than thinking about the medicine and the theory of medicine. Then the third thing we pointed to is in faith-seeking understanding is this notion of seeking. As the notion of seeking in Anselm's phrase uh, takes seriously the notion that this is an ongoing lived experience and that our experience of faith, our experience of life, is an inseparable part of coming to understand. And that rather than discounting experience, Scripture itself always takes experience very, very seriously. And so we gave you several examples last week. You have uh, the Jerusalem Council, one of the great moments, as some historians of Christianity would put it, that Acts 15 is the moment at which you get what we call Christianity. 
Because not Acts 2, Acts 15. Because Acts 15 is the moment at which it moved beyond being a Jewish sect and became a worldwide global claim about truth that encompassed all people. That's Acts 15. And in Acts 15, what they did was that they came together and they told stories about their experiences. Namely, these crazy experiences they were having in which God's Spirit seemed to be calling uncircumcised Gentiles into the people of God. And they told, experience, they told their stories. And in telling their stories, seeking to make sense of the presence of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit, they said it seems good to, to the whole, as, as somebody corrected me last week, it's, it's first as they say it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. That this is what we should do. Oh, we talked about uh, Paul's Damascus Road experience. It was his experience that changed his life. Then he had to go and reinterpret scripture out of his experience. Or you have in John, uh, the disciples coming to Jesus, and Jesus sees them and says, what do you want? And they say, where are you staying? And he says, well, come see. And they're going and seeing was a transformative moment in their lives. So faith, seeking, understanding. That's where we'll try to head today. And each class session. Um... I'm not going to tell you where we're going today. I'm going to ask you to stick with me. And um, let's see. Where, where I know where we're going, I hope. But uh, I'm not going to tell you where we're going. The household in which I was raised uh, was a household in which church was not a part of our lives. Church was our life. That is, it was impossible to conceive of who we are, who we were, apart from church. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a deeply lived experience. Uh, beside that memory that I just shared earlier about the memory of my grandmother bathing me, my other earliest childhood experiences are sitting in Sunday school classes with these uh, elder, at the time, you know, what do you, what, you know at th when I'm three, I thought they were elderly. Maybe they were 40. I don't know. But um, these elderly women who were kind and endearing and gentle, teaching me the stories of the Bible. Some of my very favorite fond memories, early memories of my childhood. Um, they nurtured faith in me. Um, my, my parents were highly involved in the life of the church. My mother was, uh, taught classes. My mother practiced immense amounts of hospitality. Uh, when traveling preachers came through, they would often end up at our house eating meals at our tables. Um, my father was a deacon. My father was a song leader. My father was an elder. Uh, this was ever-present part of our lives. You know, to, to say that we were there three times a week is not a sufficient accounting of the, what, what this was in our lives. It was our life. It was an inseparable part of our life. It was the fabric of our lives. And by and large, in those early years, it was a very, very beautiful and good thing and a wonderful thing. It wasn't idyllic. And in some of these sessions, I'll talk some about the ways in which it wasn't idyllic, in which it was oftentimes deeply problematic. But those early memories are very, very good and dear to me. My earliest memory I think I have of what I have come to call faith 
was um, some sort of mystical experience. I, um, now, for someone, as we'll say today, for someone raised deeply in our tradition with a deeply rational approach, to even speak of having mystical experiences was always looked at askance, right? Um, and I certainly never would have accounted this memory or this experience I had as a young child as a mystical experience until much, much later in life because I didn't have that vocabulary to speak of it. But, but, but none, nonetheless, one of the earliest experiences I had was uh, happened to me several times, as I recollect. I was very young, and I remember it seemed to be it seemed to happen typically when I was just coming out of sleep, and I would be lying in my bed awake, and I would have this sort of experience in which there was a juxtaposition of two things that don't go together. It was a juxtaposition of immensity and minuscule smallness. And it was a juxtaposition of strength and terror, and terror is not too strong a word for what it was for me, strength and terror simultaneously held alongside a deep sense that I was safe and that I was secure and that I was cared for almost in a maternal sort of sense. <coughs> now, I'm not asking you to do anything with it. I'm just reporting on what I recollect about this childhood experience that I had on more than one occasion. But I know that in later life, I have looked back upon that as a sort of experience of faith, or better, let me put it this way, that that was a marker for me of what I would call the gift of faith. That in my childhood church experience, or in an experience like this, faith was not something I reasoned myself into. Faith was not something I merited. Faith was not something I worked out first in my mind. Faith was simply something that was handed to me. And I was called into it. And welcomed into it. And elderly ladies loved me into it. And taught me into it. The gift of faith. Second, let me turn to uh, understanding. About the time I turned 12, a new preacher came to town. Now I'm going to call him the preacher with capitalizing the and capitalizing preacher. The preacher. And in my notes I have it capitalized, as I said, and italicized. The preacher. I do this because, A, he figured large in my life and in my psyche. He had an immense impact upon me for good and for ill. It would, no, it would make no sense for me to give any account of my vocation, of who I've become as a person and the work that I've tried to do in the world, apart from the preacher. And again, for good or for ill. He taught me as a 12-year-old, as a 13-year-old, how to stand in front of a group of people and to prepare myself and to take the people I'm talking to seriously 
with a great sense of responsibility and to be prepared. Don't waste people's time. Honor the people who are in front of you by showing up prepared and ready to say something. He, um, he taught us to take our ability seriously. I remember, I think he was one of the last people I saw before I went off to college. And um, even in that context, um, he made clear that he expected me to study very hard and to make all A's. I also call him the preacher because that's what I took to calling him to myself in later years when I had a great deal of deconstruction to do. Deconstruction of the damage he did or at least the damage that I thought he did in my recollection of my experiences of him as a boy. Now, I will hope that you'll note that I'm trying to be careful about my language. Um, I don't always trust my memories of what happened to me as a child. And moreover, one of the very first things that happened to me when I was a freshman rookie faculty member at Lipscomb was uh, Dr. Cates, uh, who's, who's a done lots of work in counseling and so forth, early childhood development and so forth. We were talking one day in, in the gym as I rec in the gym locker room as I recollect. And um, somehow in the conversation, Dr. Kate said, well, you know, it's very well known that in, early, in childhood development theories that children look at things in a very black and white way. And so a lot of times their memories that they recount as adults are memories that they have as that child who looked at things in very black and white ways and the reality may have been more complex and more nuanced than the child could see it at the time. And that was a very important gift he gave me because it made me realize, look, when I talk about my memory, it may or may not be true. But I'm still recounting my memory for whatever it's worth. But I took to calling him the preacher when I was trying to deconstruct things. I took to calling him the preacher even... Uh, in moments because sometimes the only way I knew how to process some of the stuff I had experienced to process my anger was through profanity and insults which I would write down for the preacher. One of the ugliest, meanest, most profane, creatively profane letters I've ever written uh, was to the preacher. And I wrote it, as a mentor told me to do, and then I took that letter and I read it to my friend George Goldman one day, and I got to the flourish at the end, and George's jaw kind of dropped open, <laughs> and then we laughed really hard, and then I threw the letter away. But he was the preacher. But there was a refrain the preacher would use repeatedly in his preaching. He would say this, you've got to know you know, you know you know, you know you know, it's right. You've got to know you know, you know you know, you know you know, it's right. He must have said that a hundred times in those years. You've got to know you know, you know you know, you know you know, it's right. 
over and over and over again. And since he was the preacher, I took this standard for knowing quite seriously. I began to try to employ my, my intellect toward this end of knowing, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know it's right. And subjectivity almost became the enemy. It was objectivity that was the gold standard and subjectivity that was to be feared. It was rationality that was the pursuit and experience that was dangerous. It was a non-historical reading of the Bible that was the only thing that mattered and tradition that was to be feared and that was dangerous. Is this clicking with anyone? So, certifiability became the standard. Certifiability. So when we say you got to know you know, you know you know, you know you know it's right, one of the implicit assumptions in that is you can't really say you know anything until it is certifiably known. You can't know anything unless you know you know, you know you know, you know you know it's right. Unless it's certifiable truth. And then you can say you know it. So, for the sake of our visual image for today, you have um, subjectivity. Subjectivity. By subjectivity, of course, we mean what do you know through the subject, through the person, right? And objectivity. Objectivity is asking about what sort of thing can you know outside yourself. But that we ought to be able, as human beings, to look at something, and all of us using our rationality, look at something outside ourselves and all agree about what it is, right? Subjectivity, you've got tradition over here. You have um, experience over here. You have history over here. And over here, under objectivity, you have things like rationality. You have knowledge. And over against knowledge, you have opinion. Against history, you have what's called ah-historicism or ah, an ah-historical understanding. So in other words, when we talk about ah-historical, what we mean is it doesn't matter what they thought 100 years ago. It doesn't matter what they thought 200 years ago. It doesn't matter what they thought 1,000 years ago. It matters what they thought when. 8033, right? It matters. So, so you, you get... This church was founded in on the cornerstone in AD 33, right? It's as if you, you take a big leap over all the history because the history doesn't matter. What matters is what the text says, and the only way you know what the text says is to look at it objectively, not subjective, subjectively. To look at it apart from tradition, not through tradition. All this makes sense? And so we have this set of dichotomies here in the way in which we look at the world. 
And over here in the realm of objectivity, it's possible to have certifiability to truly know what is. Only over here. And over here is dangerous. So now, of course, in this sort of construal, you know, my, my experience as a young child is not important because that is obviously highly subjective. What's important is this over here. Now, faith then, in this scenario, seemed to become not a matter of gift, not a matter of trust, but what could be established rationally, intellectually. Let me go to our third part of our schema. Seeking, or the journeying with this. I became good at playing the game, like a lot of you all I know in the room. Bible bowls, arguments about the Bible. The conviction that I was being objective, that I was detached from tradition, that I had a purely ahistorical reading of the text. One of my favorite memories about this is uh, I, had, I had this dear... Um, teacher, ninth through 12th grade, you know, I, I don't know if they still do this in um, school or not, but, you know, I, w I was in the gifted class, which is the weirdos who are put with the teacher, you know, who spend special attention with you, and um, so Mr. White was the uh, history teacher for the gifted students, and uh, he was a horrible history teacher, but he was a great human being, and uh, Mr. White loved us and was so good to us and he was one of the highlights of my high school experience. He was an old bachelor um, and uh, he loved us and we loved him. The problem with Mr. White was that he was Southern Baptist. <laughs> and so, so Mr. White and I used to have these arguments. Actually, I would argue and he would just listen. And um, we, I remember having this argument about the meaning of baptism and the right way to do biblical baptism. And I kept trying to convince him that his Southern Baptist baptism was illegitimate and that he needed to be baptized in the right way, with the right understanding when he was baptized. So I'm having this argument finally, you know, and he's just, he's just like not particularly interested in me. <laughs> and this bothers me because I'm concerned for his welfare and his eternal welfare. How old are you again? I'm like a 10th grader, 11th grader. <laughs> you are weird. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> so I'm having this argument with Mr. White. And finally one day I said to him in kind of disgust, I said, Mr. White, you know full well that what I'm saying is the truth, and you know full well that if you'll read the Bible without prejudice, that you'll know what I'm saying is right, and you know full well that the only reason that you are a Southern Baptist is because your mother is a Southern Baptist. <laughs> Which was to say, I am reading it objectively, without tradition, without the bonds of tradition, and you are stuck in tradition and your experience and your family mores. Come and be free and see it clearly and objectively, Mr. White. 
He died at Southern Baptist. <laughs> but these categories for me began to crumble in college. I would, uh, I had some teachers and an administrator who loved me, and they began asking me questions I couldn't answer. And I remember one day, under under their uh, subversive influence, I had another teacher I was listening to in his class on biblical doctrine. And of course, in our tradition, we have this this phrase about in matters of essentials, in matter in matters of essentials, unity; in matters of opinion, charity. Right. So if it's a matter of doctrine, then we've all got to agree. And if it's a matter of opinion, then we love each other and we, we work through it. We accept each other. And so the professor was teaching on this stuff, and I somewhat smart, allically in the back, raised my hand, and I said, Professor so-and-so, how do you know when a particular issue is a matter of doctrine and when it's a matter of opinion? How do you know which category to put a particular issue in? I thought that was a pretty good question. And he looked at me and leaned over his podium and he said, Doctrine is doctrine, and opinion is opinion. <laughs> well, thank you very much. You know. Or another day with another one of my professors. Um, I remember exactly where we were. We were on the sidewalk walking out of Ward Lecture Hall. And I said, Dr. So-and-so, you know, the James, I've been looking at, I was looking at James 5 last week, and you know, it has that verse in there where it says, uh, confess your sins to one another, that your sins may be forgiven. And then the next verse says, if any of you are ill, call upon the elders of the church, let them come and anoint you with oil, that you may be healed. And I said, why is it that we say that the first verse is so applicable to us and the second verse is not. And he said, because the first verse is applicable to us and the second verse is not. <laughs> so this is what I began to wonder about this. I began to wonder if there are some ways in which people sneak this under this. And the louder they insist about objectivity, maybe the more they are sneaking in their presumptions and their presuppositions that they would not dare speak out loud. So I began to wonder, um, in seminary days, I took uh, my third semester, you know, you're starting to get into higher biblical criticism and you have all these questions about the text and um, if, if you're raised with certain presumptions about the biblical text and then you start reading about the synoptic gospel problem, synoptic problem, and you start reading about the four source hypothesis for the Pentateuch and things of that sort, and you start realizing that, well, wait a second, Moses couldn't have written Deuteronomy, at least he couldn't have written all of it because it has his, uh, the account of his death, and wait a second, it does look like that Isaiah 
was probably written by at least two different Isaiahs in two very different centuries. And you start realizing that all these people who talk about that stuff, they have good reasons for why they say that. That comes out of the text, not because they're trying to undercut people's faith. And I started reading that stuff and realizing, oh man, these people are asking really good questions of the text. And then I went through this sort of crisis of faith. And I remember one day sitting in the prayer room at, at Abilene Christian in Abilene, Texas, my third semester of work, kind of feeling undone, and praying, and finally came to this point where I said, I cannot know I know, I know I know, I know I know anything. So if that's what you require of me to have faith, then I don't think I have a faith. And so I wondered, how do you have faith? If that's what I got to do. Or then, not long after that, Laura and I went to Nairobi for half a year. And um, we were in the Colston's home. They had come back to the States. And I remember one night sitting in Charles's chair in their house in Nairobi. And I looked over in his bookshelf and he had John Locke's Treatise on Reason. Now John Locke was one of the great thinkers of modernity. John Locke loved this kind of way of looking at the world. And I remembered my, um, one of my professors saying that John Locke carried, that, that Alexander Campbell carried John Locke's Treatise on Reason in his saddlebag next to his Bible. So I went over there and I picked up John Locke's Treatise on Reason, sitting in Charles's chair and I start reading it book I've never read before, and I'm reading it and I think, wait a second, this is exactly how the preacher taught us to think. In other words, the preacher who said, tradition is dangerous, the way other people tell you to think is dangerous, looking at ways other people told you to think 200 years ago is dangerous, he was telling us that because he was thinking the way they thought 200 years ago. Does that make sense? See the irony? Also, while we were in Nairobi, I know some of y'all have heard me tell this story. One day, we're coming home from work. Uh, driver's in the front seat. William, great guy. Uh, Laura's in the other front seat, and I'm in the back seat. You know, they drive on the left-hand side of the road, like, because they're British, former British colony. And uh, traffic's awful in Nairobi. We're stopped in traffic, smoke, exhaust fumes and everything. And we're stopped, and I look, and on my left, walking down the sidewalk, is a Kenyan man. And I do a double take, because he's walking free to the wind. He has not a stitch of clothes on. <laughs> except he has uh, dress socks and dress shoes on his feet. And he has clothes that are rolled up in a nice roll, just walking down the street. <laughs> and so, you know, I do the double take, and I say, William, the driver, I say, William, look at this guy. What is up with this? And William looks back, and he's very nonplussed, and he looks back at me, and he says, oh, you know, he's mad. And I said, what? And he said, he's mad. He's crazy. And so that night at dinner, I say to Charles and Darlene, I said, we were coming home today, and there was this naked man walking down the street, 
And I asked William, I said, what's up with this guy? And William said that he was crazy. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah. They said, that's the way mental illness is exhibited here, is through walking around naked. And this just blew my mind. And he said, there are people who have done studies of the ways in which mental illness is manifested in culturally expected ways throughout the world. It's crazy. And sure enough, there was another guy who had highly distinctive biology that I cannot mention in mixed culture, mixed, uh, mixed group, gender grouping, but uh, we saw him several times on the way in the morning way to school. Everybody knew he's mentally ill, and that's the way they do it. And I started thinking, wait a second. See, what I need is objectivity, rationality that's, that's opposed, that, you know, because the other one over here, right, is culture. Culture is the great enemy, right? I need something that's acultural, that's not mediated through culture, that's not mediated through tradition. And then I began to think, but wait a second. If you can't even express mental illness except through a socially expected way, how are you going to say anything about anything that's not mediated through this? Do you see my problem? So, what kind of revised understanding. Something I learned, something I was having to unlearn. Is there any way to relearn something? Um, let me give you a couple of other quick metaphors to close this out. One of the um, ways to describe modernist... Uh, let me put a point on the, what I was just saying a minute ago. In reading John Locke's Treatise on Reason, one way to think, to put a point on that point, is to say, the preacher had taught me that one of the great dangers to Christian faith was modernism. And then I realized he was a closet modernist, because that's the way he taught me to think about the world. He was teaching me to think about the way, about the world, the way the modernists had taught us to think about the world. He was just one kind of modernist, and there are plenty of kinds of modernists, but he was a modernist through and through. And then I began to realize, well, maybe this modernism stuff doesn't work too well. Now, you'll know the fact that what happens is that a lot of times when people have, they realize that this objectivity thing doesn't work too well, then what are people left to say? What are some people then rush to say? That everything is what? Relative. Everything's relative, they'll say, right? But you might think about that this way. Remember, assume I've still got all these listed. I've still got all these listed. They'll say, well, look, see, look, camp, you can't even do mental illness in an objective way. So all you're left with is this. Everything's relative, so just enjoy it. Everything's relative. Everything's objective. There's no sorts of objective truth claims anymore. We are smart enough to know that when people do this sort of stuff, it's a power play. So just rejoice in this. <coughs> but we also know from our experience that nobody really believes that. Right? I kind of, in a smart-out way, say, if you, if you find a good, devoted relativist, I, I would suspect one good way to challenge him is to just kind of help pop him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> They'll no longer be a relativist. 
right? They're like, you can't do that. Why can't I do that? Follow relevance. <laughs> um, well, what what kind of other options might there be? In modernity, you have what's called philosophical foundationalism. And the idea is you come up with a foundation that's, agree quote, agreeable to all rational people. We could, we could do lectures on this, but we won't. But the idea is that you want to find something that's agreeable to all rational people. And then the idea is you find that objective, non-traditional, non-subjective foundation, and then you build your system on top of that. So you can know you know, you know you know, you know you know it's right. You start with certifiable knowledge, and then you build on top of that. Make sense? But if you're not so sold that that works, but you don't want to act like truth doesn't matter, what sort of possible metaphor? This is one I like. Think of it more like a web or a net. Why do I believe? Why do I have faith? We'll let the dot represent the conviction. Well, I had that experience as a kid. And because of what my daddy taught me. And because of what my mother taught me. And because of that good sister in Sunday school. And that good sister in Sunday school. Maybe even the preacher. My church. And so forth. By the time I'm 23, the preacher one, I don't trust him anymore. But it's still holding on. So in other words, one way to think about convictions is rather than thinking truth doesn't matter, the subjective side, or rather than thinking it's possible to come to certifiable truth or foundation, the question becomes, how do convictions work? And it seems convictions work or developed because of community, because of experience, because of intellect, all sorts of reasons. And rather than making us think, the only way any claim can make any difference to you is if you know you know, you know you know, you know you know it's right, you might just realize that that actually is a, a recipe maybe to destroy your faith. And then maybe instead there are other ways and it's going to require lots of trust. It's going to entail lots of questioning. It's going to allow and require lots of journeying as we seek to try to make sense of what we play. Got three minutes for <laughs> comments or questions. Thoughts? Frustrations? Something that resonates with you. <coughs> when I said I can't say the is free, did you immediately say because of your Church of Christ background against tradition? Because I responded to you now, I've given up so much Church of Christ tradition. That is not 
struggling with that. I could not understand that. I was asking other people, what does that sentence mean to you? And got different answers from each person. So I said, I can't say it. I'm not sure what we're talking about. Uh, and it may be that it came from my Church of Christ tradition of saying, you know, you, you have no freedom. But I don't think so at 83. I think I've gotten beyond that somehow. You're probably right. <laughs> um, and I don't, I don't know that you told me what the phrase was, so I would love after class to hear what the phrase was and talk about it some more. But you're, but I may not have given you the particular yeah. phrase. I wrote you an email, too, saying, I can't say it. I don't, I don't yeah. understand it. Thank and you. I, I won't be saying it. Yeah. Thank you. Somebody else? You said the very end community. That really just things resonated that whole thing is in the New Testament. There's I counted 110 one another mm. verses. So if I just realize that what's in my head is suspect, what's in my heart is suspect, and the way that's challenged and the way that's resolved. I'm not in a vacuum. I'm not isolated from the body of believers. I mean, Christ gave us the church for a reason. And I mean, when I confess my sins, when I share with other people, like the Union Platinum, you know, this is where I think the rubber meets the road. I need other. I need other people. Yeah, and that, that whole notion of community, all all of a sudden. Our truth claims are inseparable from community. I think that's a very, very helpful. Thank you. All right, my friends, thanks very much. See you next week.